More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Well, it's that time, time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. I'm Kelly, and I'm glad to be with you today. I hope everything is going great in your life right now, that things are going well for you. Just need a little positivity sometimes in our lives, right? Because sometimes things don't feel like they're going amazingly well. But my hope and prayer for you is that you're having a good week, that you are feeling good mentally and physically. And if you're not, well, hey, that happens as well. Nothing wrong with that at all. And I just want to offer my support to you if you find yourself in a place that's not so positive and upbeat. And it's hard to think positive and upbeat when we're talking about childhood sexual abuse. It really is. But I will say that getting to talk with you and interact with you is always one of the absolute best parts of my day, my week, my month, and my year. I always say that I wish sexual abuse didn't happen. Of course. Do I wish I'd never experienced it? Of course. However, I treasure the friendships that I've made, the people that I've met, and just seeing other people in their heart for survivors or other survivors, just having the courage to keep carrying on day after day after day when they carry so much on their shoulders. It's just the reality. So I am positive and upbeat and happy to be here with you today. Unfortunately, we are, as usual, going to be talking about things that are not super positive and upbeat. So I want to share some stories that have been in the news over the last couple of weeks and the last month and some things that are just going on in the news that I think that survivors and advocates have probably taken note of. And the first story that I want to share is not related to sexual abuse within the church whatsoever, but it's a story that just kind of grabbed my attention when I first saw it. And it's about a California prisoner who beat two child molesters to death with a cane while in jail. Now, I'm interested to know how he got a cane in jail, but that is completely beside the point. This man, and I'm going to summarize here, I will definitely share this article with you in the show notes so you can read the whole thing and get all of the details as they were presented in this article. But I'm going to just kind of paraphrase and put it in my own words. This California prisoner was in a higher security prison. He is in prison, by the way, for murder. And you look at a picture of this guy. He's got tattoos on his face. He's a scraggly looking guy. He just looks like he could be a murderer. Like I know we're not supposed to judge a book by its cover, but if we were judging a book by its cover, I would look at the guy and be like, yeah, he's probably off to person or two. Anyway, so he's 41 years old and he was transferred to a lower security prison. Apparently his behavior was so great that he was able to be transferred to a lower security prison. In fact, to the California Substance Abuse Treatment Facility and State Prison. Now, He was not happy about this transfer, and he actually complained. He wrote letters. He told people in authority. Not sure what all he did, but he said, listen, 
I'm not happy about this move. But they moved him anyway, I guess, because they thought, you know, he's not that much of a danger to people. And so we can put him in a lower security facility. Well, he went from being in a cell where he was by himself to being in a pod with, I guess, six prisoners total. And so they spent a lot of time together. From what I can gather, I again, I don't know the exact details. I was not there in prison with this man. But he was in this pod with more people instead of just being in one little cell by himself. So he was not happy with this transfer. He called it a careless mistake by the Department of Corrections, I guess. And he actually left this paper trail of grievances about this transfer. He did not want to go. Well, he wrote a letter to a news station. And in this letter, after I guess after the fact of what he had done, he stated that a child molester moved into his pod about six days into his stay at the prison. And because he actually ended up killing two child molesters, we have to keep things straight. So he just referred to the man as molester number one. And he wrote that molester number one began watching PBS kids in full view of the other inmates. And the other inmates took this as him taunting them because he's a child molester. Should he be watching PBS kids? Absolutely not. That's just feeding his depravity. That's just feeding the monster, if you will. And so he went to bed that night after this dude was sitting and watching PBS Kids. You know, they knew he was a child molester. The inmates were angry. He goes to bed that night and says he couldn't sleep because he had not done what every instinct told him he should have done right then and there. So he packed all his stuff. This was obviously premeditated. He packed up all his stuff, knowing that the situation would be resolved the following day. So This is the part where it kind of starts to remind me of how the church responds to sexual abuse because this man who was furious with the child molester and wanted to kill him for sitting and taunting them watching PBS Kids, he actually spoke to a prison counselor the following day, hours before the attacks took place. And he said, I need to be transferred back to level three before I blank one of these dudes up. And I guess the counselor did not take him seriously at all. She just kind of dismissed him. I just said she because that's what I pictured because I've actually read a book um, by Dr. Amy Zabin, Conversations with a Pedophile. And so she was in prison. So my brain just kind of went there. I don't know if his counselor was male or female. And it does not, not pivotal to this story. Um, Anyway, he returned to his pod after he warned the counselor that he might turn violent And he was kind of mulling everything over when molester number one came back and he put his TV right on PBS Kids again. And someone else, a different prisoner, said something like, is this guy really going to watch this right in front of us? So Watson, this hardened criminal who is in prison for murder, said, you know what? I got this. He literally said, I got this. And he went and picked up a cane. Again, don't know how they got a cane in prison. But he picked up a cane and went to work on the guy, which I guess means he beat him to death. So Watson then leaves the pod and he's on his way to find a guard to turn himself in when he bumps into another child molester. And I guess he thought, well, I'm already in prison for murder. I'm about to have another murder on my rap sheet. So why not make it an even three? That's not even at all. (laughs) And he literally beat this guy to death also. Two child molesters in the space of, it sounds like, a few minutes. Now, all of these beatings happened and didn't draw the attention of the correction officials. So he actually approached a prison guard and confessed. He's like, hey, I've got some pretty bad news and still was holding the murder weapon. And he's like, yeah, 
sorry, I just killed two people. And the security guard thought he was joking. Uh, but then he actually looked around the corner. He saw the mess. Um, two people had been beaten to death. And so obviously they believed then that he was serious. He gave a full confession to prison officials detailing the situation. And as of yet, he has not been charged or as of the time of this article that I read online. Now, he said that if he gets taken to court for this, he'll plead guilty to both murders. And he also hinted in this letter that he would try to kill again if he's housed with child molesters in the future. Okay, I mean, this is a crazy story, right? You don't hear stuff like this very often. I, I want to be clear. And I know I put caveats in my podcasts a lot. I'm always like, okay, so just as an aside, I just want to be clear. But I think it's really important here. I don't want to be misunderstood. I am not whatsoever telling you that I am applauding this man for murdering two people, whether they were child molesters or not. I am not saying that I think that we should go around murdering child molesters. Not what I'm saying at all. And the main reason reason for that, and this is probably going to sound terrible, but the main reason I don't think that anyone should kill a child molester is that they're going to go to prison for it more than likely and spend a lot of time behind bars when the person who needs to be behind bars is the person who's molesting children. So don't do it. You're going to ruin your own life. Highly recommend you never, ever, ever murder anyone, not even a child molester, tempting though it may be. But this story grabbed my attention because I mentioned to you, this guy just looks like a hardened criminal. You can tell he's lived a rough life. You can tell he's broken the law quite a bit. And he's just no nonsense. Yep, this child molester wanted to watch PBS kids in front of me two days in a row. And so I beat him to death with a cane. And then I saw another child molester and decided to beat him to death also. But here's the thing. Hardened criminal, he's what we would consider some of the scum of society. He's a murderer. Like, I don't know whose life he took, uh, but he did take someone's life. He murdered someone. He took a life and he's serving life in prison because he committed this murder. And what I want to know is why is it that some of the most depraved among us and some of the most hardened criminals, some of the people who have done the worst things, why is it that they understand how bad pedophiles are and how important it is to stop them. And churches and the more clean cut of society, if you will, struggle to grasp this concept. You have people saying, oh, you know, yes, he raped children, but he has asked Jesus to forgive him. And who are we to say that he's not forever changed? I mean, we have to trust him with our kids and we have to love him and accept him and We've got to let him in our church. And, you know, you can't say anything bad because, bless God, this wonderful person has just repented. And, but for the grace of God, there go I. And I don't like it, makes me insane. This person who is so depraved or lost control so badly that he was able to take someone's life, murder them, this hardened criminal knows that a child molester has no business sitting and watching PBS kids. He also knew they were being taunted by this child molester. Like I can imagine that if 
one of the abuse apologists, one of the people who's like, oh, we should just forgive and sing kumbaya with abusers, as Jimmy Hinton said in a recent podcast, just sit in a circle holding hands singing kumbaya with abusers. I just picture one of those people seeing a person who was convicted of child molestation, like sitting and watching PBS Kids and making excuses for it. Like I've never actually seen that particular scenario play out, so I'm not going to say that I know for sure exactly what would happen, but it just seems a little bit insane to me that hardened criminals, some of the worst of the worst who have wound up in prison for doing awful things, even they know that sexually abusing children is the scummiest, lowest, most disgusting thing that you can do, period. And I struggle with this because while murderers understand the depravity of child molesters, the church struggles so hard to understand this, that pedophiles are dangerous, that even if they cry and say they're sorry, they're still dangerous people who should never be around kids. They they don't get it. But the most hardened criminals among us who have done some of the worst things you can ever do, they get how bad child molesters are. So again, not using this as anything prescriptive. I am not telling you that people should be murdering pedophiles at all. Um, Highly recommend that you do not do that ever. But I am saying it's just interesting that this hardened criminal, like he's a murderer. He's done something really horrible. He took all of the rest of the life of whoever it is that he killed. And he gets that child molesters are the lowest of the low, the most depraved of the depraved. So that brings me to another story, and I will also link to this story in the show notes as well, and I'm sure you've seen it in the news, I've been following it, about a daycare owner in Washington, D.C., who was told by some people in her daycare, I guess some parents had complained, and another daycare worker, I'm not sure of all the details, make sure that you read the article if you want to know. But I do know that children were coming forward and accusing this daycare owner's husband of molesting them. So she knew of two people who had come forward and said that he had molested them. And she was devastated because this was her life's work. She'd been a daycare owner, I think they said for like over 20 years. And, you know, her school had unfortunately become a playground for her husband to sexually abuse kids. And I say she snapped. So she wrote some stuff. I guess she wrote that she was going to go and hurt him, that she was going to shoot him. Her husband was out of town. She met him at a hotel. And she claims they got into an argument and he came at her and she shot him in the leg and in the neck. However, according to what police say and according to what she wrote in advance, um, it seemed like she went to this hotel with the express plan of, if not murdering, definitely hurting and incapacitating her husband. So I was really upset to see that her family, I I wasn't upset about this part. Her family actually started to GoFundMe to help pay for her legal fees. And GoFundMe actually removed this from their website. And that really infuriated me. Like we use GoFundMe for different things all the time. But that upset me because While obviously we don't condone gun violence and we don't condone violence at all or trying to hurt or maim or take the lives of pedophiles, you also have to kind of try and understand what the mentality of a person might be when they just discovered that. And I'm talking a woman who was still with her husband, somebody who by what it looks like had a marriage that was fine and everything was okay. 
and she suddenly finds out that her husband has been preying on the small children from her daycare. Like it's absolutely disgusting. And so I would say this woman probably snapped. And now she's looking at a lot of charges. And the most recent article that I read, I think, said she's facing up to 10 years in prison. And I'm all for like, where's Kim Kardashian? She's helped get people off the hook before. I'm like, you need to take on this case because I think that it might be a travesty of justice if this daycare owner goes to prison for what she did. At least not guilty by reason of mental instability. I don't want to say insanity, mental defect, whatever they call it now. I feel like that should be her defense because what mentality are you in when you find out something like that? Again, child molesters are the lowest of the low. Even hardened criminals understand that child molesters have no place in a society with children, that they have no place outside the walls of a prison. They have no place sitting in front of a television watching little kids. That's disgusting. Like even the most hardened among us know that. So what about a person who actually has attempted to live her life righteously and has never murdered anyone or molested anyone? She's minding her own business, running this daycare, caring for children. It's her heart and her soul. Like her business was everything to her and those kids were everything to her. And she finds out that her freaking husband is sexually abusing, not even two, but it turned out to be at least three. And those are just the three that have come forward. We all know how it works. We all know that where there's smoke, there's fire. And where there's a little fire, there's usually a forest fire on the way. Um, With pedophiles, by the time they're caught, they have a lot more than three victims. So one can think he's probably molested other children who've never come forward. But these are just a couple of stories, and they're not exactly the same. You know, one is obviously about a murderer murdering a pedophile. The other is about a woman who shoots her husband because she finds out that he's molesting little children in her care. And then there's a third story that I wanted to share that's been going around in the news over the last several weeks, and that is uh, the Department of Justice investigating the SBC, the Southern Baptist Convention has basically been hiding sexual abuse, sweeping sexual abuse under the carpet, and hiding abusers for decades. And I, I'm not from the SBC. I did. I was a part and a member of an SBC church for several years, but I never got deep into the SBC culture. So I know there are a lot of people who know way more about it than I do. But a few weeks before, Uh, Maybe a month before we got the news that the Department of Justice was going to be investigating the SBC, the SBC actually released this list they had of abusers within the SBC, people who had been credibly accused of sexually abusing children, a list of over 700 names, just insane. And, you know, survivors from the SBC have been calling for this for years saying you need to do something and stop just shuffling molesters around because that's essentially what the SBC was doing, just shuffling child molesters from one church to the next, basically saying like, I mean, I don't think you can call it child sex trafficking. It's it's almost like a different side of the same coin. You're basically trafficking kids. You're sending abusers from church to church to church. So I guess you're not necessarily moving the kids, you're moving the abusers. But the same thing is happening. It results in people being abused everywhere these child molesters go. And I find it like super interesting, and by interesting I just mean ridiculous, that there's not more of an outcry about this online. The Department of Justice investigating the SBC, of course some people are going to be against it, but I just find it interesting that 
almost nobody is talking about it. And I don't mean in the advocate community. If you are a sexual abuse advocate or you are a survivor yourself, it's pretty much a given you're going to talk about stuff like this. When you see it, you might share it on your page. You might uh, give your opinion on it. You know, you're probably tuned in to stories like this more than the average person. But I just find it interesting. The Department of Justice starts investigating the SBC and you kind of hear crickets, you know, it's like, where's the outrage? Where are the pastors standing up and saying, you know what, uh, what's gone on in the SBC isn't okay. And it's good that the Department of Justice is investigating them. But I feel like a lot of churches and church leaders can't say this because they're just opening themselves up to the very real possibility that they're next. And there is a lot of mistrust of government agencies within the church. Now, I'm not saying that there's never cause to question authority or question police officers or question prosecutors like I'm not saying that at all, but within the church, there's a very real us versus them mentality. And I felt it a lot growing up. There was like this understanding that in the world, they couldn't understand us in the church. And so we had to be really careful about the things that we said. For instance, you could say something that could get like the Department of Children and Families called on you and, oh, they just don't understand that Christian people spank their kids and that's okay. But if you talk about it, you know, we're going to get somebody to come to our house and butt into our business and basically making it seem like these big, bad government agencies just want to take over your life and control you and make you not be a Christian anymore. Like that to me was kind of the mentality of all of this, this mistrust of government agencies. And there are examples from my childhood of things that like maybe one of my siblings said at school about discipline or something that teachers, like it kind of just like lit up the radar of teachers and they were like, um, excuse me, like this shouldn't be happening. And then instead of at home looking at what, you know, we could do different discipline wise, it was more like, oh no, now you've invited the government into our home and this could happen and this could happen. And it's just, again, that mentality, it's us versus them. It's a mistrust of these government agencies. But I applaud the Department of Justice for investigating the Southern Baptist Convention. And I know that a lot of church people are going to say like, no, there's a separation of church and state and the Department of Justice should stay out of the church and we need to deal with these things in house. And I say no, like the church has had decades and decades and decades to deal with these things in house, as people want to say, and to deal with this these things biblically, as they will say, instead of according to the law, because apparently if you're in a church, you don't have to pay attention to the law anymore, which is completely not a biblical concept. But they've had chances to deal with this on their own. And guess what the church by and large has not done? Dealt with the issue of child sexual abuse within the church. They haven't dealt with it. And in fact, like the Southern Baptist Convention for decades hid what was happening within the church, hid it, didn't report most of these people who were accused, credibly accused, and some even convicted of child molesting and just withheld all this information from everyone. This database of over 700 people, known abusers in the Southern Baptist Convention, if each one of these people had been made known when they first were accused or when they were first were convicted or when victims first came forward, how many people could we have spared from having been abused in the SBC? But instead, for decades, they hid all the depravity 
that was going on, I guess, to protect the denomination, to protect individual churches, to protect pastoral salaries, to I don't know all, but I do know that it was completely, completely wrong. And not only did the SBC fail victims in the way that they've handled sexual abuse over the decades, but they've actually created more victims. They have helped child molesters create more and more victims because they were not willing to step up and say, we got to do something about this. We can't let these men preach in these churches ever again. We need to publish their names. We need to make it clear they should not be going after positions in a church. And guess what? You're worried about somebody's reputation. First of all, if you've molested a child, you don't get to care about your reputation anymore. Sorry, that's just the way that I feel about it. Once you have sexually abused a kid, you forfeit the right to tell anybody what they can or can't do to harm your reputation. You don't get to ask other people to care, and you shouldn't care yourself either. The SBC gambled with the lives and the futures of the most vulnerable people in their denomination. They gambled with them like, ah, you know, we'll just write their names down in our secret little database and not tell anybody, keep it hush hush. And their gamble did not pay off. Instead, victims have been further harmed and more victims have been amassed because of the choice that they made to gamble on, ah, you know what, maybe he'll never do it again. We'll just put his name here in a database and move on with our lives and hope that all of these 700 plus child molesters we know about don't abuse or molest any children ever again. I've said this on the podcast before, but I'll say it again because it bears repeating. The church should be leading the charge when it comes to protecting children. We shouldn't be waiting for murderers and hardened criminals in prison to be doing it for us. The church should be leading the charge when it comes to protecting children, because that's what Jesus did. Instead, though, we're seeing cover-ups, we're seeing the churches shuffle abusers around, silence victims, and heap compassion on abusers. And Jimmy Hinton and Clara Hinton actually had a really good episode of their podcast recently talking about the difference between people who just sin you know, or, or fall prey, um, fall into sin, or they're enticed into sin. Um, the distinction between someone like that and someone who preys on other people and sets traps for other people. And I loved that episode because it is such a good distinction to keep at the forefront of your mind. We're taught that a sin is a sin. We're taught that, oh, we can't judge anybody because uh, who are we to judge when we've sinned too? But no, I want to stop anyone right there who's talking like that. There is a distinction in the Bible. Jesus made the distinction himself, and the distinction is made in scripture between people who just fall into sin and people who set traps for others. And someone who is molesting children is setting traps for other people. And they're wolves. They're not broken sheep who need to be, you know, mended and and sewn up and bandaged up and brought back into the fold and loved to repentance. That's not who they are. They're actually wolves. They're people who set traps for others and they love what they do. They love the sin and wickedness that they're entangled in and they want it to continue. But in churches, we continue to heap compassion on abusers and shame victims if they're not able to just be like, oh, sure, my abuser can come to the same church services that I and other children come to. Yeah, that won't bother me at all. Like we're, we're shamed if we disagree with that. We're shamed if we're not just super nice and sweet. And again, as Jimmy said, wanting to hold hands with abusers and sing kumbaya, we're shamed by the church for that. Hardened criminals 
And murderers and the lowest of the low in society get the depravity of child molesters, but our pastors can't seem to get it through their heads at all. And it drives me absolutely nuts. I think that I've said this on a previous podcast as well, but because of what we're talking about today, I definitely think that it bears repeating. If I had to say this in every single episode, I believe it wholeheartedly. If the church is not going to prioritize the safety of children, I firmly believe that God is going to raise up people who will. You've heard in scripture, it said, if if we do not praise him, the rocks will cry out. Well, I feel like if the church will not protect the safety of children, a worldly organization will do it instead. And I, I put worldly in quotes because that's what people think of the Department of Justice and, oh my goodness, separation of church and state. And what is the state doing within our churches? Well, guess what? Separation of church and state is great and all, but not at the expense of little children, not at the expense of the kids who are going to go and be sexually assaulted by a deacon or a Sunday school teacher or a pastor because some denominational leaders decided they didn't need to publish the names of these people and try and protect the vulnerable. So separation of church and state, it's all well and good, but not at the expense of the most vulnerable among us. And if the church is not going to prioritize the safety of the vulnerable, which they've proven over and over again that they're not going to do, then God is raising up people who will. And if that's the Department of Justice, so be it. But I really think that the church should be grieved over the fact that the Department of Justice has to come in to investigate, not because they're a worldly government organization, you know, and they have no business in the church, not because of that, but because the church should be leading the charge in this area. The church should be caring for the vulnerable and protecting them from wolves. And they've done such a horrible job of it that the Department of Justice has to come in and clean up the mess for them. And I think that that's a shame. That's something that should definitely make people hang their heads in shame. But what we see instead is, you know, people bloviating about how, you know, there needs to be a separation of church and state and how dare the Department of Justice. And this is just a way to get at the church because you don't believe in Jesus. And you know what? I I might listen to it if the church had been doing an excellent job at protecting the vulnerable, but they suck at it. Like just full stop. They just do. There's no other way to put it. That's how it has been for decades. And I don't see it changing until big things like this happen where the Department of Justice comes in and says, hey, we're going to do a little investigation here. We're going to investigate why there are 700 plus names of abusers on this list. And you didn't think that you should report any of them to us. (laughs) Like they're going to get investigated and things like this cause lasting change. So I say bring it on. If the church is not going to prioritize the safety of children, God is going to raise up people who will. And so often there are people who have nothing to do with church, who have nothing to do with religion, who aren't showing up on Sunday and and knowing all the Bible verses and singing all the hymns from memory. So often the people who are protecting children are people who you would call worldly, people who do not identify with the evangelical Christian church. And we need to stop and ask ourselves why that is. Why is it? Instead of looking down on these people and being angry that they're not separating church and state, how about look at it and say, why is it that this person who doesn't even believe in Jesus or this person who doesn't even go to church, why is it that they care about the safety of children and the leaders of our denominations don't? Why is it? In closing, I just want to say that I think that the church is reaping what it has sown. 
So anytime somebody wants to come at you with, you know, it's not okay for the Department of Justice to get involved in our church or denominations, they need to keep out of it and, you know, separate church and state, yada, yada, yada. Anytime somebody says that to you, seriously tell them what you sow, you shall reap. And what so many denominations have been doing, especially the SBC, like there are some bad ones, but the SBC is just rife with abuse and has been for so long. And they are reaping now what they have sown. So don't ask me to feel sorry for the SBC. Don't ask me to be upset with the Department of Justice for overstepping. They're not overstepping. They have to step in to protect the vulnerable. They have to step in to ensure that this stops happening because the church will not do it. They have had a lot of time to do this. And honestly, if in the last, you know, five, 10 years, all of these survivors and all of these advocates had not been screaming at the top of their lungs, they still would not have done it. This is not something they just, oh, let's just release this list out of the kindness of our hearts and let's just show all this love for survivors. No, the only reason they've done Jack is because advocates and survivors have been screaming so loudly that this denomination hasn't been able to ignore them any longer. And that's sad. It's really sad that doing the right thing doesn't come from being a believer in Christ or a follower of Christ. And and doing the right thing doesn't stem from your love of Christ. Instead, doing the right thing is just something you have to do because your hand is forced because the victims won't shut up about it. The church is reaping what it has sown. So don't ask me to feel sorry for them. And don't ask me to be upset that a government organization is investigating them because I'm not going to be. You guys have had decades of opportunities to protect the vulnerable and you've chosen not to do it. And now God has raised up people who are going to do it in your stead because of the poor choices that you've made. Again, hardened criminals, the grossest of the gross, locked up in prison, know how pedophiles should be dealt with. And the church, by and large, still doesn't have a clue or doesn't want a clue. Well, that is what I've got for you this week on Survivor Sanctuary. I hope that you enjoyed that episode. And I would love to hear your thoughts in the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. You can let me know what you think. If you have anything to add, any stories you know of people taking the law into their own hands and maybe trying to protect children from pedophiles. Uh, Again, not condoning harming people who harm children. Don't do it. You don't want to go to prison. I mean, that's the main reason. Nobody wants to go to prison for doing something horrible. We get that it's tempting. We get that the stress tells you, I just want to hurt somebody. Don't do it. Absolutely not. But definitely mull over the fact that hardened criminals seem to care more about the welfare of children than the men who are shepherds of the flocks. Just kind of crazy and insane to me. Well, that's what I've got for you today. I will catch you back here on the next episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then. Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. 
see you then.